Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. We are a little more than halfway through the Summer Olympics, officially known as the Games of the 32nd Olympiad, unofficially known as the 2020 Summer Olympics, or just Tokyo 2020, which is, of course, extremely confusing, since I am almost 100% certain that we are currently existing in the summer of 2021. But no matter... I am now and have always been a huge Olympics junkie, not just because of the astonishing athleticism on display, but because the Olympics have been historically and are all but inevitably an epic mashup of a whole bunch of things I enjoy a great deal. Sports, world-class competition, global culture, soft power politics, and performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, sorry, you can strike that last one if you're still wedded to your illusions about these athletes. I am not. In any case, these Summer Olympics have had all of that good and tasty stuff in abundance, what Jim McKay used to call, quote, the constant variety of sports, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, the human drama of athletic competition, plus the ever disorienting and often terrifying overlay of COVID, which has meant that these summer games are being played as always on the grandest athletic stage in the known universe, but without any spectators in attendance. And so to help us all wrap our heads around this exceedingly captivating and supremely surreal spectacle, as well as taking us on a merry journey down memory lane, we have with us today two of the smartest, knowingest, liveliest, and simply most fantastically entertaining sports commentators that I know, both of whom happen to be authors of brand new books that you would be an absolute idiot not to read. The first is the executive editor and senior writer at Sports Illustrated and the author of Glory Days, the summer of 1984, and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever, Mr. John Wertheim. The state of the 2020 Olympics are as awkward and arrhythmic as the time code. We're all trying to reconcile our feelings. We, we love the Olympics. We love what they stand for. We're all a little ambivalent about the Olympics in general and specifically holding them with no fans amid a pandemic. We are reserving judgment until uh, the flame is extinguished to uh, reach any sweeping conclusions. They've been very awkward so far. And our second guest is a man who scarcely needs an introduction, though if I didn't give him an effusive one, he would likely pummel me into unconsciousness with a flaccid soccer ball. The pride of Liverpool, England. If you leave out, you know, the Beatles, Echo and the Bunnymen, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Atomic Kitten, Kim Cattrall, Jody Comer, Jason Isaacs, and Rex Harrison. One half of the NBC Sports soccer broadcasting power duo, Men in Blazers, and the author of Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home, the one, the only, and thank God for that, Roger Bennett. The state of our union is bad. Not bad as in bad, but bad as in good. The moment we decided to embark on this episode, we knew that John and Roger would be perfect guests, and not only because of their journalistic bona fides, their perspectives on sports as part of a larger social tapestry, their fabulous verbal dexterity and fluency, and their tremendous sense of fun. No, it was the fact that both Roger and John had just published their respective books to wide and deserving acclaim and more than healthy sales, and that those books had so much overlap, temporally, substantively, and thematically with each other, and that the history that both of those books bring to life albeit from very different perspectives, has so much relevance to the matters of interest raised by the 2020, the 2020, the 2020, fuck it, the 2021 Summer Olympic Games, and this moment more broadly at the intersection of sports, culture, and politics. John and Roger are both 50 years old, a fact of high relevance to their books, points of view, and our discussion on this week's episode. Wertheim's book is about the summer of 1984 in America, an extraordinary season that gave the world two monster rock albums, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA and Princess Purple Rain, a string of blockbuster movies, including Ghostbusters and The Karate Kid, 
the birth of the modern NBA with the first time that Magic Johnson's L.A. Lakers and Larry Bird's Boston Celtics met in the league finals, the drafting of Michael Jordan by the Chicago Bulls, and the arrival in the commissioner's office of David Stern, and of course, the 1984 Summer Olympics in my hometown of Los Angeles, and really a whole lot more. It was a protein summer, which, as Wertheim claims in his subtitle, quote, changed sports and culture forever. And whether or not that argument stands up, it definitely was among the factors that changed Roger Bennett's life forever as the cultural products of the summer of 1984 and that whole era of the early, mid and late 80s made their way across the pond haltingly and with great difficulty in that pre-internet age and into the consciousness of a young Scouse lad who was utterly entranced and infatuated with all things American and whose entrancement and infatuation would ultimately not merely bring him to our shores, but make him a U.S. citizen. And that is the topic of Roger Bennett's equally fantastic new book. What John and Roger have to say about all of this, the lasting legacy of the 1980s, the connections between the past that each of them have mined in their books and the present that they spend their time illuminating to our great benefit, the ways that sports and these Olympics in particular have become so deeply and often unpleasantly affected, or perhaps I should say contaminated by our toxic political culture and the new era being born right before our eyes in which mental health is suddenly being taken seriously by top flight athletes and their fans alike, and in which Simone Biles has taken a giant step towards nothing less than redefining what greatness means in sports. Well, all I can say about Roger and John and their takes on this stuff is that you're going to want to settle in, crack a cold one and listen up. Because although we have been lucky to have some pretty, pretty, pretty good guests on this here podcast, I don't think we've ever produced an episode more rollicking more rambunctious, or more wantonly joyful than what you are about to hear on today's Hell and High Water. And we are here on Hell and High Water with two guests today, two amazing, brilliant gentlemen, authors of fantastic books, John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated, author of this fabulous book, Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. John, great to see you. And Roger Bennett, the Roger Bennett, the one and only, the man whose book is in some ways named after the song you just heard. The book is called Reborn in the USA. An Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. Gentlemen, I was telling you before we started, that there's no podcast I've ever done that's meant more to me than this podcast. And I, I can't tell you, my delight is off the charts. Welcome. It's a joy to be here. Likewise. <laughs> I wasn't kidding when I said that I was, I was thrilled to be doing this because I believe you're both 50 years old. That's correct, right? Both of you? Oh, man. Sorry, I don't mean to. But I'm 55, so I can say that, right? John, John, you're 50. John looks like he could be my son. Oh, stop. I'll, uh, you haven't seen my gray hair. Uh, I, I will, <laughs> can, can I plead that down? No, I'll, I will cop to 50 if Roger will too. Roger, you're 50, right? I'm 80. 
Yeah, but actually, fifty feeling eighty. Yeah, well, you're the chronologically you're fifty with the body of a of a spry eighty year old and the mind of a still holding it together one hundred and twenty year old. So that's that standard. You're doing pretty well. I am fifty five. So we are all basically in the same generational court. One of one of the many reasons that I wanted to get you guys together, but two two primary ones. One, uh, you guys are like me, both huge sports fans, but also talk brilliantly about not just sports, but about the intersection of sports and culture and politics and society. And that's what we're going to talk about mostly today. But I love the fact that your books, John, your book about 1984 and that those 90 days that changed everything. And Roger, your book about growing up in England, worshiping American culture and sports, which obviously takes place over more than more than a couple of years. But a lot of it takes place in that 84, 85, 86 time frame. And so you guys should have a lot of a lot of things to say to each other about what happened. So we're really thrilled for you to be here. I wanted to start, though, by talking about the current Olympics, uh, and we'll do a little, this is like the news of day portion of Hell and High Water. So just let me kick this off by saying to you guys, the 2020 Olympics, as John suggested, it is 2021, I'm certain, even though we're calling them the 2020 Olympics. Thoughts from a high level, what do you guys think of the Olympics so far? John, you can start. Oh, man. Um, it, it is a new range of emotion. I mean, it, there's there's something sort of sad, and we have great, you, usually, uh you know, it's this festive, we're on the streets of Rio, or London's been invigorated. This is sort of a, a new a new palette of emotions as we watch these games. Some of this is obviously COVID. Some of this is our ambivalence about how commercialized these games have become. And, and you'll notice all this debate about whether they should happen or should not happen. Now, mood, of course, none of it had much to do with the athletes. It was all about NBC and it was all about sponsors and investments in infrastructure and $20 billion on facilities. You know, the time change has not been a, a great ally. We're still sort of, as we speak, we should, we should timestamp this the way we timestamp 2021, but we're still sort of midway through yeah. waiting for one of those signature, you know, we're waiting for one of those signature moments. I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's, we, we all sort of were hoping, I think that this would be this great binding exercise and at a time when the planet needs unity and, and unification. I think we were all sort of at some level clinging to that. I'm not sure that's materialized. And it's and the other thing too is we, uh, just a, a quick riff about fans who about two years ago we thought were obsolete and all the money in sports was through media rights and we could play these games on green screens and sound stages and who cares. <laughs> I think one thing we have realized and they've been especially pronounced uh, at these Olympics, fans kind of matter and whether yeah. it's swimming and diving or gymnastics or tennis it's it's really awkward to see these events play out in front of this pasture of unoccupied seats roger what do you reckon i know that during the pandemic it, like the absence of fans and when the one sports kind of got up and running and the absence of fans kind of freaked me out is it weirding you out to see these games take place in empty arenas you know covid changed not just sports but it changed your approach to life in general and I'm a big believer post-COVID that making the best out of what you do have rather than bemoaning what you don't have is kind of an approach I'm trying to bring out to pretty well everything that I do do. So in terms of the Olympics, skateboarding, man. It's amazing. <laughs> it's the future. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I am fairly shattered, mostly because my world has been turned upside down. I'm an absolute Olympics junkie, which means a nocturnal lifestyle. And savoring what it is for what it is, never taking it for granted. Obviously, football, fandom and football, there's an there's a adage, uh, football, soccer without fans is nothing. But the reality is even fanless sport gives us the meaning, the sense of global connectivity, the sense of joy um, and the sense of collective memory that we crave and need as humans. And the thing that has really 
blown my Olympics away and everybody's is really the Simone Biles moment. Yeah. What a great American. Right. And it's just an amazing actor to me by not participating is possibly the most courageous, the bravest, the most remarkable achievement, an incredible moment of seizing agency, yeah. of expressing vulnerability, of articulating trauma, acknowledging human pain. That's ultimately why we watch sports, to transcend sports itself and tap into agony, feelings, human wonder. And and that thing, more than anything, is going to be, to me, ignoring the culture wars, the, yeah. the peers' morganification of culture, which is just a human darkness. That not taking part is one of the great moments of sport that I've witnessed in a long time. Well, actually, I'm going to go pretty deep on Simone Biles in a second and on Piers Morgan and the incredibly... I mean, I guess it's not surprising at this point that as our politics have gotten so much more <laughs> beyond like I used to use to talk about the bitter partisan politics and polarization. And it's now like those words don't sort of stack up to what we're experiencing. But, you know, the fact that our these Olympics have had so much projected on them, I do want to talk about that. But I want to, John, before I do that, I want to ask you this. You know, you, you said in your answer this thing about there was this debate about whether these Olympics should even happen. Right. Up, really, up until until they started, people were still asking that question. Should we be really doing these Olympics? primarily because of COVID, not just because of the absence of spectators, but also because of the potential risk to Tokyo, because of the risk to, to athletes and so on. And you sort of glided by the notion that that debate, as soon as they started, it kind of went away. Do you think that's right, that everybody now sort of is like, oh, that was a silly debate? Or do you think that there's still, as COVID numbers have spiked in, in Japan, you know, we haven't seen many athletes knocked out because of COVID, but do you think the debate is settled that this was a good idea or is there still some question that history might look back and say, maybe this wasn't such a good idea, we should have put it off even further or just skip this whole cycle? It's tough. I mean, the phrase I kept hearing was too big to fail, which uh, again, had nothing to do with with athletes just as, as a commercial enterprise. I don't know. I mean, you know, we I watched the Wimbledon finals a few weeks ago and that was played at center court. There were fans in the stands. Uh, yep. the, the Euros were played in in front of fans. I, I think that sort of the science and the data has, has borne out. It pr probably was the right decision to hold these games. I mean, luckily, I, I think everyone was bracing for these hu Worse. huge sort of micro clusters. This was going to be a super spreader event and athletes and events were going to have to get canceled. We really haven't had much of that. I, I mean, I, I like Roger's point, which is it's, it's very easy to to defecate on television coverage and to... Uh, to you can say yeah. shit on this podcast. Yeah, we're, we're going to shit, shit on the television coverage and we're all displeased. Um, you know, I, I do think there is some virtue into to holding this event. Uh, I think sh shared experience is something we could probably all benefit from. It, it's competition. There's still gold medal winners. I mean, I think on, on balance, it probably was the right decision to uh, to hold these games. At least, uh, I mean, again, I, I feel like the, the timestamp guy. Um, yeah, as, yeah. as we so recorded, uh, good good call so far. But I, but I think especially coming off of these events where you did have fans in the stands, I, you know, we, we would have heard, I don't understand, they just, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks played in front of 18,000 right. people and now we're not having the Olympics. So I totally. think it pr probably is the right decision. Hey, Roger, do you think, you know, you look at the numbers, I know you're a businessman at heart, um, an entrepreneur, and, and you're, to, you're the soul of an entrepreneur, the men in blazers. I have no soul. I have no soul. Well, okay. I, I was speaking metaphorically, but that's fine. I, <laughs> I, I, I accept that. You know, you look at the numbers, which are fucking abysmal, right? And now granted everything, numbers for everything in television, viewership of everything over the course of the last 40 years have been on a linear descent because we have this complicated universe in which people you know, choose their own adventures and nobody gathers around the common hearth anymore in the way they used to. But it still is just stunning when you look at how much the numbers are down just since the last summer Olympics. Do you have an explanation for that beyond 
the atomization of, of the television universe? Do you think that there's just less interest globally in the Olympics? How, how if I were going to ask you to do your blue book on why are the numbers down, not just down, but down a lot? What would be your answer? I, I, lo I love any question, John, where I'm asked to speak on behalf of the entire world. Well, I, um, Roger, uh, you, Roger uh, you do that. You do that whether I ask you to or not. So I just make it explicit. It's, it's why you've invited me on, uh, because I will. I'll step yeah. up and happily on yeah. speaking on behalf of the... It's not an Olympics problem. It's not a television problem. It's really... I mean, all sports leagues are dealing with this same issue that the what was taken for granted it's why i love john's book so much you know, going back to a more innocent time when sports absolutely dominated and was a monolith which it is absolutely not now and you i mean the nfl is terrified of a future in which kids are not playing the game as they used to and in which the highlights now find the the avid fans and that they don't have to sit through the narrative of an entire NFL game and that the, the future of the NFL is that kids will be hanging out playing Madden online right. while having the best bits of a Sunday red zone actually ping to them on the telephone and it's adapting to that new re new reality the Olympics is massive the Olympics is making I mean in terms of social engagement driving social conversation but how it was imbibed in the old I remember growing up in Liverpool when Wimbledon was on television, my mother was gone for four weeks. She was sat in front of that television for, I mean, just an entire four bloody weeks. She was not moving as long as Virginia Wade was hitting tennis balls uh, at Chris Everett Lloyd and England still had hope. And, you know, that notion of having to sit in front of a television and imbibe in the same way, it's not a two weeks Olympic problem. Right. It's a football problem. The 90 minutes of a football game is now a terrible, a soccer game is now an incredible challenge for an audience under the age of 18. And how we adapt, I mean, the, the face of sports, the face of media, speaking on behalf of the world, yeah. that, that that's essentially the nexus of the question you're asking me to solve. Yes. And it's, it's, I think of it as like the house of highlightsization of everything. Like, you know, we had ESPN doing sports center and highlights for a long time, but now it's like, literally you go on Instagram and all you really want to see these, these kids, these kids today, all they want to see is the dunks. It's like, you know, show me, show me the, the 37 second clip of that dunk. That's all. I don't even want to watch the game like that. I mean, I'm speaking for them, but it is an amazing thing. Who thought like you house of highlights started? You're like, wow, that's pretty cool. But you know, it turned out to be like this juggernaut because that's the way people want to consume media now it's not just bite-sized it's like granular right it's changing everything because you know not just the highlights it's uh changing the way the audience approach the world if yeah. you have a kid that's applying to college now in your day john the vassa the wesleyan the browns i mean that was the vaunted place that many americans looked at the the application to ohio state Yes. to Clemson, yeah. to, uh, to, you know, to SMU is now like Texas Christian soaring off the chart. Right. Whatever is on college game day is where you aspire to go no yes. matter where you are. And it, it's <laughs> yeah. just reshaping our, our society, our culture in ways mm. that are so deeply profound. We are living a whole new reality. Yeah, Wertheim, you want to say something? We need to correlate college game day with uh, college applications. There's, there's a yeah. study in there. No, I, I mean, would we have consumed media any differently if it had been, if we'd been able to avail ourselves to this, I mean, you, you can tell me that I don't have to sit there and watch this whole goddamn basketball game. I can just uh, whip this thing out of my pocket, get the final score, and see the best plays. That's awesome. Totally. So I don't, I don't think it's you know kids today in their phones. You know, I, I think if we had had these options, we probably would have consumed sports similarly. And sure. I, I think some sports are, are better suited for this than others. But you know, you keep hearing, 
one of the big stories, at least in my little, you know, we're all in our silos now, so we have no idea if any of this actually has news value or if it's just right. our, our sort of self-selecting group. But, you know, the, the ratings decline to me is like, you know, people aren't buying candles at nearly the clip they were before electricity. People aren't using these booths where you can make a phone call nearly as much as they used to. Yeah. Did people really think that television ratings were not going to decline sharply from five years ago? Right. Some of that, the staple of some of that coverage right now is the advertisers are freaking out that they're not getting the numbers that they paid for. And the networks are like, we'll do make goods with you. We'll give you something <laughs> back. And you're like, you want to say to these people at Procter and Gamble, like, what the fuck planet are you living on, guys? Did you really think you were going to get like, what, 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 what CPMs did you pay for there, buddies? Right. It is kind of incredible. And, and I, I agree with you. I remember as a kid, my dad and I used to watch you know, This Week in Baseball, right? This Week in Baseball, you know, epic, you know, one of my favorite theme songs of any uh, sports program ever. I, I, I had a show very briefly on the recount that was called This Week in Bullshit. And we stole that that music because it was so awesome. Um, and Mel Allen doing his his, yeah, Mel Allen his, his poetry. But that's what that was, right? It was just a string of highlights, right? And with, with that Mel Allen poetry, holding it all together. And so, yes, I think, John, I think you guys are both right. If we had the capacity to watch stuff in House of Highlights forum, we certainly would have done it back then. And we were, in fact, reaching for it by watching This Week in Baseball and other highlights things. That's why when ESPN, which we'll talk about a little more later when we get into John's book, why SportsCenter was an immediate you know, sensation. Sports fans love watching things that way. I want to talk about Simone Biles, though, just because Roger brought it up. It was something I was going to talk about anyway at some length because, John, to your point before, we will time date this. We're, we're sitting here taping out Thursday, July 29th. This podcast won't be on uh, available for a few days, but you said we were still waiting for that moment. And, and to me, so far in the Olympics, the moment has been Simone Biles not competing in terms of what's captivated everybody and generated an incredible amount of conversation, mostly laudatory, but not all laudatory. And some of the people who are not laudatory are very loud, but it's worth talking about because I think there's some deeper things to say about it. But first, let's listen to Simone in the press conference she gave explaining what happened. It's been really stressful, this Olympic Games. I think just as a whole, um, not having an audience, there are a lot of different variables going into it. It's been a long week. It's been a long Olympic process. It's been a long year. Um, so just a lot of different variables. And I think we're just a little bit too stressed out. We had a workout this morning. Um, it went okay. And then just that five and a half hour wait or something, I was just like shaking, could barely nap. I've just never felt like this going into a competition before and I tried to go out here and have fun and warm up in the back went a little bit better but then once I came out here I was like no mental is not there I say um put mental health first because if you don't then you're not going to enjoy your sport and you're not going to succeed as much as you want to so it's okay sometimes to even sit out the big competitions to focus on yourself because it shows how strong of a competitor and person that you really are so I played that sound a little long because there's just so much in it that I think is interesting. And John, I want I would start with you just by because Roger started, I already gave his point of view. I'm obviously in the Roger camp of thinking this is an incredibly inspiring and potentially transformative moment because it really so much of what she said there, you know, just the the phrase, the mental is not there. The notion that the mental part of the game, which we all know if we're sports fans, we know the mental part of the game is as important as the physical part, but her prioritization of that the elements of elevating mental health, the notion that as she explicitly says, you know, it's okay maybe to sit out a big competition because in fact, there may be something more important than winning at all costs and maybe stoicism in the face of, you know, try to plow through it. And even if there's a risk of injury is worth it. That's what we expect of our athletes. If you deconstruct her, her reasons for not doing this, it gets at a lot of very deep things about what we think about athletes, what we expect from athletes, at least what we used to. And 
it's kind of reimagining a relationship with the game that's not the standard way in which athletes have operated really through most of our old man lives as sports fans. So, John, I ask you, you know, just tell me what you thought when this happened and and what your assessment is, you know, both your visceral assessment of it and your analytical assessment of of what it means as much as what it says. Oh, man. Um, it's yeah, a big I question. Mean, I, I know. I, uh, no, it's, I think you set it up really well. I mean, I the disclosure, I, I come from my, my guilty pleasure is tennis. So I just sort of came through a similar discussion with Naomi Osaka. I, I do think we shouldn't discount the degree of danger here. I mean, we're, we're not talking about someone who is n- nervous before hitting a, a golf ball in a cup. I mean, you, she is contorting and distorting herself in midair, and there is a significant d- degree of danger here if, if she's not in the right headspace. It's a little strange, you're right, to, to have this Olympic moment that is one of, of absence and not presence and uh, inaction and not action. But it's really, I, I think this is a, a landmark moment. And I think most people who weren't sort of reflexively the trolls and I mean, it's, I, I think we, we shouldn't even give oxygen to uh, some of the, I mean, it's just not, it's just not a discussion we probably ought to be having, in my opinion. I mean, I, I don't think there are two sides to this issue. I, I do think it, it really made me think about sports history. And another my guilty pleasures is is UFC is cage fighting and there are athletes in that sport who have won belts who five minutes before it's time to get in the cage they've they want to leave they've had to be convinced and in one case a guy didn't even show up and I think all athletes at some level go through this look everyone can do the physical act at some level meeting the moment is is one of the other great challenges and sort of my my mind went to a sort of a good for Simone Biles and, and I sort of give a, an assist to Naomi Osaka here. Yep. I, I think uh, if you I have I have two teenagers and, and mental health is something that's very much in the in the discussion. We're coming off a pandemic here. But I, I don't know about you guys. I, I really started to think historically of we haven't considered this. I mean, sports have, have kind of sort of caught up, but for years it was a rub dirt on it culture and he's soft and he's a head case and we didn't right. take this seriously. And now you go back and you think, what other moments in sports history had this mental health component? And we sort of cavalierly talk about choking and we sort of have this this very sort of uh, reductive vocabulary. But I started to sort of wonder what, what other athletes have had mental health challenges, struggles, have not been as outspoken and I would say as courageous as Simone Biles and what other sporting events throughout history have been impacted by athletes who are going through the exact same thing, but did not have the confidence slash vocabulary to do something about it the way she has. Yeah, Roger, it's uh, it is interesting. I, I can't think of very many precedents, frankly, you know, you made your feelings clear about it. I think, you know, but I do want you to I do talk about it a little bit because, you know, Michael Phelps is like this now. He's, he's devoted a lot of his time to the question of mental health. We've not had discussion. I mean, look, there's a society wide thing going on where we talk about mental health now in a way that's much more open than than for a long time. This is like a great shame. The notion of depression, other things were things that for g- generations, people just did never want to talk about openly. So we're doing as a society, we're having more conversations about mental health. But sports was a place where it's a little lagging industry in this area, right? Because there is this kind of prizing of, as John just said, play through pain. And obviously Simone Biles has played through a lot of pain, has won, done incredible things on broken toes, right? You know, but play through pain, suck it up for the team. All of those kind of cliches have been the dominant paradigm that we observe sports through. And she basically is saying, you know, no, there's a different way of thinking about this. And I just, I wonder, you know, whether you think that it's potentially, as I said before, I don't want to overstate it, but are we going through a transformative moment here where Naomi Osaka is another example, as John said, where the way we think about what's important about sports 
and how we what we value in athletes and what we project on them, what we expect from them. Is that where we get some kind of turning point here where we're going to look back and say this was an important moment, a watershed moment and where things are changing, I would say for the better. I think most with the three of us would say for the better. But is that where we are right now, do you think? Yeah, undoubtedly. Everything happens in context and having been in lockdown for past 17 or 18 months as we emerge physically and mentally you know the bookend for this for me is partially osaka but it's also christian erickson's collapse in the euros i'm sure you remember the opening danish game of the euros a elite athlete in the prime of his career a star a european star off the ball fell over with the world watching and had a heart attack later the medical staff said we lost him we lost him on the field we had to bring him back. <laughs> and together, the two of them, Jesus. Christian Eriksen, and by the way, while the world was watching, and that Christian Eriksen moment did something incredibly powerful. It forced us, while watching sports, which we normally move to to try and get away from the realities of life, it forced us together because the camera stayed on him for an agonizing, awful amount of time. It forced us to contemplate our own mortality, our own lives, the truth about life that we're all going to die, that it's all so fragile and can be gone in a moment. So seize it, thrive on it, take nothing for granted. All hail sports. In that moment, I mean, it was a reminder, we watch sports for those moments that transcend sports. That's a funny thing to say, but it's true. That's why we watch for sporting moments that transcend sports. And this moment by this incredible human being to me, Simone Boss, by the way, it has to be said, what we do not know about the Larry Nasser case. Yes. I mean, or, or let's put it this way. Incredible. What we do know, what we do, do know, know. Yeah. makes it one of the most horrific things I can contemplate. And that needs to be said as context. Yes. But what Simone Biles has done is so unfathomably bloody brave. It's the most courageous thing. Yeah. It's the hardest thing to do in, you know, in this, in this moment. I can only think about what she's done at the moment. She's made us think in the same way as what happened to Christian Eriksen made us think. She has made us think about feelings, about humanity, about priorities in the most profound way. And my Lord, my Lord, we need that. Yeah. And, you know, John, you made the point, you know, when I was reading about these things, like, you know, yes, first of all, it can't be said enough times that if you are doing what she does, running full out, hurling yourself into the air, you make a mistake there, you end up landing on your head you end up paralyzed you end up you know you're you're taking your life in your hand when you hands what you do it's not you're not on a golf course you're not i mean again you can die playing any sport but there are sports where you know a mental error can cost you a lot more than than other sports right so the stakes are very high for her for sure and you know so you read about her saying that she has there's something i guess in gymnastics called the twisties which is essentially like i guess like the yips it's kind of like the, the kind of the gymnastics version of that where uh, you know, a thing you do automatically, you suddenly start thinking about it because you're thinking about it, you start to start to fuck it up. Just to say one more thing about something John said, you know, of course, this has been incredibly politicized. A bunch of white assholes, white fat men in broadcast booths who have never done anything courageous in their lives, let alone it had what happened to overcome what Simone Biles has overcome to speak of the Nasser thing to to take the risks that she takes in the game a bunch of these jagoffs sit there and criticize her I will not play the sound I actually thought about playing Charlie Kirk but you know he refers to her as a as a sociopath uh he called her a selfish sociopath while he sat there in his fucking American flag hat 
I mean, all I, I just want a douchebag, but, but I do want to go to this because it, it does take us to the other conversation I wanted to have. It's not just Charlie Kirk, right? This whole games has become a target for the right in a way that, again, maybe you would say it's, of course, we just had an insurrection. We know the country is deeply polarized, but listening to conservative commentators who prize patriotism above all attack American athletes for the reasons they are, again, maybe totally predictable given that they're the way they they monetize off of attacks on wokeness. But I do want to play this this clip from this guy at Newsmax who has a broader riff, which is, again, you're hearing a lot of on places like Fox News and OANN and other places like that. So let's play this Grant Stinchfield talking about his feelings about the about the American teams in the Olympics. I just so we can talk about it and rip him a new one on the other side. Well, folks, it's not often that I'm happy a U.S. team loses in the Olympics. It makes me sad to say it, but I found myself rooting against not just Megan Rapino and her merry band of America-hating female soccer players. They lost one game, I guess, over the last few days. But I took pleasure in the men's basketball team, USA's first team loss since 2004. Yes, Team USA suffering an embarrassing loss to France, 83-76. to The collection of whiny, overpaid social justice warriors are very hard to root for. The team is filled with anthem kneelers, and I find it ironic they are willing to put USA across their chest, but in the not-so-distant past, they would kneel for the anthem. Somebody ought to go up to them and just rip USA off their chest. I don't want them wearing it. I don't know. I mean, aren't you guys at a point where you're just disinclined to uh, even dignify these things? And and, and the, the, the Capitol Police well, uh, was asleep well, at the switch. And I mean, at some level, but let's know. Yeah, but let's talk. I mean, look, if it wasn't for the fact that, that there are tens of millions of Americans who believe the same thing, I would not be inclined to dignify them. But I don't really think I don't think it's helpful. I'm not, I'm not trying to get my back up about this, but. I think it's like it's like these debates about platforming conservatives. People like don't platform them. You're like they have a platform. They are big figures in life. There are tens of millions of people who believe shit that Donald Trump and these kind of people say. And so it seems to me either you're going to ignore them. That's not going to make them go away. You're either going to ignore them or you're going to try to knock them down. And and I that's my preference, I guess, maybe because I'm combative is to try to knock them down. And I agree with you. If you're asking John whether I'm whether I'm at some point, I find them predictable and assholic. The answer is yes. But unfortunately, they have lots of adherence. There's lots of people who think these things. And it feels to me like maybe it's a little better to try to confront them than to just pretend like they don't exist. I don't know. The, the, the wreaths of irony and the, uh, the hypocrisy. And I, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm curious where Roger stands. I feel, I feel like we've spent, you know, f- four and a half years now with these false equivalencies and these sort of trying to have a reason discussion when reason doesn't exist. I think we're seeing, uh, I don't necessarily intend to go here, but let's go here. Uh, you know, I think, aren't we seeing over the last six, eight months when people are deprived of oxygen, their, their following is, is not as robust and vocal as we think it is. I, I'm curious where Roger, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, is, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for Roger to weigh in. Go ahead, Roger. Good. I, I, I can't, I, it's agony to listen to that crap. It really is. I, I will say that, I mean, that is just the sound of sadness, self-pity, self-loathing, weakness, fear. Uh, I mean, impotence. It's it. The reality is, I'm trying to ignore the cultural. Simone Biles has done something really important to me. Something that's worth far more. Please God, long lasting. It's the single act you could do that's more long lasting than winning a gold medal. And the culture wars, Twitter warriors, whoever that bloke is, they're throwing out bait that they know very well will be picked mm-hmm. up by people like us. They know it's an agony to listen. What I will say, watching the US women's national team 
who have been pathfinders for women's sport around the world, not just yeah. here, but around the world, watching that team uh, have their representation twisted and then have individuals openly, brazenly cheer against them as a new American. I've got to say, that is an agony for me to witness. That yeah. There's an element of America now that is, as that gentleman just, that bloke just said, cheering against America. But to me, what we just listened to is ambulance chasing. It's like a sideshow yeah. that the world is better off. It's, it is the Piers Morgification, and that is a human darkness. If we if we do engage, then we follow that headfirst into a void of human darkness. So let's cast it aside and think only and talk only about what Simone Biles has done right. in this run. I say that with deep upset because I've just watched the English national team. I ride with Team America. I adore America now. When America play England and Alex Morgan scores and sips the tea and says, <laughs> suck it, Piers Morgan, I cheer louder than bloody hmm. Kenny Powers cheers. But I, I, I watched that English national team play football this summer and these beautiful, that diverse, eclectic face of England, a divided nation, a deeply divided nation. Yeah. Um, and I cheered for that team because I want that to be the face of England, a brave, young, deeply diverse, willing to speak out on social issues with such emotional intelligence. And England cheered for them all the way into the final when they failed. Yeah. And the three last penalty takers the three last kids to, and they were kids to take the kick all happened to be black and i knew as soon as they missed what was going to happen and it did not take long they were derided they were destroyed the racism the misogyny the hatred poured out and the reality is as, uh, as one of them said the english they cheer for us when we're winning but as soon as we lose just human darkness comes and i, I want so very badly for the face of the england to be that English national team and not the human darkness that spoke last and loudest. And that's really the kind of battle that we're engaged in right now there and here, John. We're going to take a break because I do want to, at some point before we end, I want to come back to this. You know, the, there's two things that we're talking about, I think, that that could deserve more discussions. You know, Shakari Richardson's another example. You mentioned Naomi Osaka. We talked about Simone Biles. There's like well, a lot of things, certain things these these people all have in common, all non-white women. Mm -hmm. And there's been people like Jamel Hill have pointed out, you know, we had this other controversy about the special swim caps that are designed for for black women being outlawed at the Olympics and, and the underlying racism it reflects. That's one thing. Another thing is, John, part of the reason why I feel like it's worth talking about is because, you know, I see in the reaction, the notion like that these police officers who testified about 1-6 the other day, hearing conservatives uh, Laurie Ingram, others on Fox News and other places calling them crisis actors. I think there's actually a similarity there to the kind of people who are attacking Simone Biles and not just it's it's obviously bad faith, but this notion that kind of patriotism doesn't anymore mean that we're on the side of America. Patriotism now means we're on the side of some conception of what being tough is. And so seeing the, the cops cry, we trash them because they're not tough enough. We meaning these right wing assholes. You know, these athletes who are prizing mental health above above all else in the moment, they are also trashed in a similar way. I think there's it's one of the distortions that isn't just just confined to sports. And it's it's creeping out, particularly on the right, where, you know, it used to be back the blue. Now it's back the blue unless they unless they show any kind of humanity. Same thing here. If the guy people on the team disagree with you politically, you trash the team. All of a sudden you're no longer patriotic. You're not for America anymore. You're for your idea of what America is. And your idea of what America is, is this kind of very white and 
tough, and I put air quotes around tough version of what this idea of what America is supposed to be. So I don't know. I think those are things that have been on my mind and me bugging me, but I do want to, I want to get to your books. So we're going to break right now. They make me just as crazy as they make you guys. I promise you. Um, We're going to take a break. We're going to come back on the other side and uh, talk to John Wertheim and Roger Bennett, authors of great books. We're going to spend the rest of the podcast talking about here on Hell and High Water. And we are back for part two of Helen Highwater with John Wertheim and Roger Bennett. John Wertheim, the author of Glory Days, The Summer of 1984, and The 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. And Roger Bennett, author of Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. So I want to play a little more music because I love getting music on this podcast. And so here we go. Here's a song uh, from one of the two mega platinum, unimaginably pervasive, like inescapable albums in the summer of 1984. We had Bruce Springsteen already. So now we have the other one. This, the opening track to the album, that album, of course, Purple Rain, the song Let's Go Crazy, and the artist, Duh, Prince. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. So there it is. That is the Prince Rogers Nelson with the first song on the album Purple Rain. Also, there was the movie Purple Rain. They were kind of a double feature in some ways. The album came out in June, but the movie Purple Rain hit movie theaters on July 27th. And that was the day before the opening ceremonies of the Summer Olympics on July 28th, 1984. And and John, your book is all about that summer. And I want to talk about it at some length now. But I got to say, like, you know, you focus brightly back in the time we talked about atomization of culture earlier. You know, I had come home from my freshman year of college at Northwestern University. I came back to L.A. I spent the summer of 84 in L.A. when the Olympics were going to be happening there. And you could not walk down a block in the San Fernando Valley where I grew up if a car with the windows were down, if it was cool enough, you didn't even need to have the air conditioner on. You were either hearing that record, Purple Rain, or Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA that came out about a month earlier. So John, set it up for me right now. Your book's mostly about sports, but also about culture. So talk a little bit about the movie music pieces of this. It was an extraordinary summer that had Born in the USA and Purple Rain and a bunch of incredible blockbuster films that were just every Friday, the records and the and the movies came out every Friday. And every Friday, it was like some new thing that blew your fucking head off. Oh, man, I don't know where to begin. I, I'm sidebar. I, I just did a piece for 60 Minutes on, on Prince and Prince's vault. Yeah. And um, boy, the, the, the 1984 uh, output from Prince would have sustained most artists in perpetuity. Um, no, I mean, I think this actually dovetails quite nicely by, by accident or design with what we were talking about before with the Olympics and these fractured audiences. Yeah. And we can debate whether uh, so, sort of, uh, you know, monoculture is uh, a, a word we, we, we bandy about. Um, you know, we, we can debate whether uh, one is preferable to the other. But in 1984, when we did not have these devices, we all kept to the side of our laptops. You know, we, we didn't necessarily get to watch what we want when we wanted it. We had these shared experiences and we all knew the same pop songs and we all went and saw the same. I mean, that the whole idea of going to a movie now sounds very quaint to me. Yes. Hey, we're, we're going to go to this big box. We're not going to sit where we want to sit. The times might not be convenient. They might sell out of tickets. We may have to step on gunk. 
and then we we all get back in our cars and go home. I mean, the, the movie yeah. experience sounds very quaint right now. But no, I mean, in, in 1984, for, for better or worse, we knew the same TV shows. We knew the same catchphrases. There was much more binding. I mean, there were a lot of drawbacks to that. And, and we I think we nostalgia by definition is A.A. Gill calls it sort of the, the warm bath of nostalgia. We all love nostalgia, but I think sometimes it's easy to forget the drawbacks. One of them is there, there were only a couple ways to watch the same crappy shows and we didn't have all these creative outlets and we didn't have on-demand viewing but in 1984 it's it's exactly what you said we all knew the karate kid because we all went and saw it we all listened to the same pop music we all watched the olympics because there were only three networks anyway and that was what was being promoted while everybody else was in reruns and i think from a you know this is prime Reagan 80s, this is free market, uh, this is sort of the height of free market. I mean, there are a lot of sort of political and cultural factors, but we all knew each other better because there was just the, the battery of choices was so much narrower. Yes, there's you could you could have a very long conversation about the about the pros and cons of monoculture, but you know, those albums that we those two that I mentioned, right, which were so titanic, you know, that they were pervasive and and Prince and Springsteen dominated so much of what everyone it was kind of like, you know, two summers earlier when thriller dominate our lives. You know, Roger, you're sitting in England, you're sitting in Liverpool. One of the things that John's book points out is that it wasn't just that we had a monoculture and it wasn't just that we had these huge superstars. Like there was rock and roll then, which we no longer really have, which is a whole other subject for a whole other podcast. But, you know, the reality is that part of what fed all of this was the MTV and being able to see these performers, to see Bruce Springsteen, to see Prince, to see those videos that became iconic. Courtney Cox, you know, on Dance in the Dark and 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 Prince, the whole movie Purple Rain was just one long music video in a lot of ways. Um, people like Morris Day in the Time got famous because of that and had no diss to Morris Day in the Time. But for a kid growing up in Liverpool in 19, summer of 1984, was like MTV, I don't remember in your book whether you talk about MTV specifically, but was that like a lifeline for you? I guess MTV Europe didn't start until somewhat later. So did you see videos? We had, we had three bloody television channels, mate. We had well, three tele... Here's the reality. We were in the dark <laughs> ages mate i mean it's why i wrote it's why, why i wrote my whole book is like the north of england in 1980 why well, I, I come from liverpool a magnificent city yeah. but back in the 80s margaret thatcher was laying waste to the north the coal mines shut the steel mills the the cotton mills in manchester yeah, miners were just warring all over the north yeah. of england against the police if you've seen billy elliot you kind of get the drift but what we had, what I made a life out of, life was black and white. It was unemployment. It was a heroin epidemic. It was humanly dark. No Courtney but, Cox in Dancing in the Dark? Is that what you're well, saying? Here's, you here's, like here's the important, uh, important thing that you need to understand about America. We got it all, but we got it all years later. There was a right. lag in those yeah. days. So I subscribed to the Rolling Stone magazine. It would come six, seven weeks later. It would have on the front cover. It would say, Tom Cruise is unbelievable in Top Gun. And I'd be like, what is that movie? <laughs> Who is that person? And then I'd be like, you know what? I have to wait for at least a year until yeah, that yeah. bloody comes out. Everything, yeah. you know, everything took years, at least a year, sometimes a year and a half. I'm looking at the, yeah. the top 100 signals of 1984 in England. It was all wham and Frankie goes to Hollywood. Right, Lionel yeah. Richie's sure. in there. We had Wonder saying, I just called to say I love you. But, sure. you know, Prince is uh, just about scrapes the chart. Yeah. And we made do with whatever we could. We had three bloody channels in England. And I will say, when a fourth started <laughs> yeah. on a budget that was minuscule, yeah. and in 1985, they started to broadcast the NFL for an hour a week. Thank God. It was, it was <laughs> mind-blowing, life-changing. Right. 
Well, it's funny when I lived in I lived in London when I worked at the Economist magazine. I lived in London from 1990 to 1994, and even then, 1990 1994, it was like Cheers was a phenomenon around that time. You're like, this is like a decade old television show at that point. You know, Seinfeld was. You know, people were the Simpsons. Things that had been, had been popular three or four years earlier or been breakthrough in America three or four years earlier were just getting to London, even as late as as the early 1990s. So that point is is well taken. John, I, I made the MTV point. Another one of the breakthroughs in that period of 84, not invented in 1984, just like MTV wasn't invented in 1984, but the other big breakthrough, of course, ESPN, when we're just beginning to taste the wonders of the 500 channel universe. I want to listen to some of the very first words spoken on ESPN by Lee Leonard, this was September 7th, 1979, so a few years earlier, but let's hear what that was like, what ESPN sounded like back in those early days. Hi, I'm Lee Leonard welcoming you to Bristol, Connecticut, 110 miles from New York City. Why Bristol? Because here in Bristol is where all the sports action is as of right now. And we're just minutes away from the first event on the ESPN schedule. That's the 1979 NCAA College Football Preview. And then we're going to follow that with a doubleheader of games. Two of the professional slow pitch league World Series games will be seen tonight. Now, softball is one of those rare sports that everybody knows something about. Why? Because we all play it on Sunday when we drink a little beer. That, I mean, the five years later, uh, when in the summer of 84, that's ESPN didn't sound that much different in the summer of 1984. Talk about the way that the change in sports media also started to actually affect the change in, in how Americans related to sports itself. Sure. For, for the record, I, I think that that was literally how ESPN went on live air. Yeah. I mean, I think that literally was the first word spoken. Also, why Bristol? Because uh, real estate is cheap and you don't have those pesky labor unions um, that you have in Manhattan. According to him, because that's where all the sports is happening right now. <laughs> yeah, right. There's, no, there's still no sports happening <laughs> exactly. in Bristol, even today in 2021. <laughs> well, there is softball, which everyone knows from when they drink a few beers. Um, yes. Right. No, I, I think um, ESPN was, it, it's a great origin story. And the great pivotal moment came when ESPN had this this showdown with the cable operators and they said, you know, they were they were paying to get on the air. And suddenly ESPN said, wait a second, we've been doing this for a few years. Everyone likes us. I mean, it's it's Aussie rules football and world's strongest man. But we also do these highlight shows that people like. And no one wants your crappy cable if they're not getting ESPN. You don't have the leverage here. We do. And we're not going to pay you a fee to get on Cox Cable. And there are there are a million of these different cable companies. You're going to pay us. And if you don't like it, people are going to be really pissed off when they get cable and they don't have ESPN. And ESPN won that stare down. In 1984, they got a couple pennies from, you know, I, I think at the, the start of the year, there were like 18 million households that got cable. And by the end of 1984, there were 30 million households that got cable. And those pennies went to the, whatever it is, $7 a month we now pay now. And it was a whole different, you know, we, we always talk about now we can watch sports 24-7. I mean, the, the great beneficiaries of ESPN were also the leagues and the colleges and those athletes who had salaries. And I, I think sometimes we, again, it's this, this whole kind of nostalgia and games of the week used to be fun, but 24-7 sports that we all pay for is also the reason why we have athletes who are millionaires now that used to have to have second jobs working at the shoe store in the off season. So um, <laughs> 84 was a, a big year for, for cable. And I think that, you know, I, I started this book and it was kind of like, well, a lot, a lot of shit happened that summer. Was it just, you know, what, what's correlation and what's just, you know, what's, yeah. what's coincidence. Yeah. What became clear was this, 
this thundering force of cable uh, was was driving a lot of this. Whether it was CNN, whether it was MTV. Yeah. I mean, t- t- Ted Turner is kind of the genius in all this. Who uh, sure. very nearly owned ESPN, CNN, and professional wrestling. He he didn't close the latter two deals. <laughs> that would have made him a rather powerful media figure. Yeah, uh, not that he wasn't anyway. But um, no, I think that this cable TV changed everything. Certainly in in terms of sports. So, like, you know, the other thing that's happened in, in the start, Roger, in the summer of 1984 is we're getting we're headed towards the Olympics. And there's this kid who plays basketball in North Carolina named Michael Jordan, who is about to enter the NBA. We've just had for someone sort of like me, Los Angeles Laker fan from from birth, the beginning of the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Showtime Lakers, Celtics rivalry. The first time they meet in the finals is 1984. David Stern becomes the commissioner of the NBA, transformative figure, one of the most transformative figures in the history of sports, I would say. And I think John would probably agree with me. But Michael Jordan is like, in some ways, eventually overshadows them all. And the television element, I mean, Mike, you just said something about shoe stores, John, you know, <laughs> Roger, can you remember when Michael Jordan first came on your radar screen? When's the first time you, you saw Michael Jordan with a basketball? Yeah, can. I was on a train to Manchester as a 15 year old in uh, 1986 and a um i had a skateboard magazine i was actually going to the one store in england that sold american footballs which i so desperately wanted so i was taking a day having saved up a small fortune to buy myself a wilson football and i had a skateboard magazine and it had a tiny front of the book piece about this dude michael jordan <laughs> who is almost bald. I remember that's what it said about him because like bald athletes, not very big in England. And it said he's got this thing. It's a sneaker thing. He's told the powers that be to sod off. And this shoe is sweeping the nation over there. (laughs) And genuinely, that may have been, the shoe may have been sold on Mars or Venus as far as I was concerned. I was like, cool, cool. And I had a pen friend in Chicago who I wrote to at that point. And I wrote to him. I said, I hear there's this guy, Mickey Jordan. Uh, he was like sweeping the nation and uh, I didn't get any response to him, but he did send me back that classic Sports Illustrated poster of Michael Jordan, tongue out, going for a dunk. Yeah. And I, I believe, I'm pretty sure, like I was the only person in England to have a seven inch copy of the Super Bowl shuffle, the only person to have a William Refrigerator Perry poster <laughs> above my bed pushing a fridge over, that I was probably the only kid for at least 10 years in England to have a Michael Jordan poster in their bedroom. It took a long time for basketball to make it, for Michael Jordan to pierce out of that American, uh, right. that American just velocity that he had here. Mm-hmm. Well, and eventually, eventually did and became, you know, one of the great global you know, ambassadors of any kind of any industry ever in the history of the world. And, you know, John, I, the Jordan thing is obviously, you know, we all watch The Last Dance. You write about him a lot. He's a big figure in your book for obvious reasons. I want to play just so we can hear Bobby Knight, uh, legendary college basketball coach, of course, and chair thrower. You know, I'm a legendary chair thrower myself. I always think of myself as a disciple of Bobby Knight's in that way. Whenever I'm with Roger, I throw a chair at him. So um, let's listen to Bobby Knight talking about Michael Jordan. This obviously in the context of the 84 Olympics, Bobby Knight was the coach of that American basketball team. Let's listen to him talk about Michael Jordan. The kid is just an absolutely uh, great kid. If I were going to pick uh, the three or four best athletes I've ever seen play basketball, he'd be one of them. I think he's the best athlete I've ever seen play basketball, bar none. If I were going to pick people with the best ability I'd ever seen play the game, he'd be one of them. If I were going to pick the best competitors 
that I'd ever seen play. He'd be one of them. So in the categories of competitiveness, ability, uh, skill, and then uh, athletic ability, uh, he's the best athlete. He's one of the best competitors. He's one of the most skilled players. And, and that, to me, makes him the best basketball player that I've ever seen play. The best basketball player I've ever seen play. Bobby Knight uh, is quite an imprimatur. And at that point, Michael Jordan was just a college kid. John, just just talk about the introduction in the summer of 84, as covered in your book of Michael Jordan to American life in the context of, as I, as I indicated before, the NBA, which was a, a troubled, fucked up, about to collapse league when David Stern took it over. And the combination of Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson and David Stern transformed it into what it is today, which is not a, a basket case by any means. It's a pr- pretty pretty good summer for the NBA. <laughs> no, I mean I think what's rem- I mean, Bob- Bobby Knight is the most retrograde. I mean this t- talk about someone who uh, is not on the right side of history. The time passed by, and yet here he is, a uh, futurist. I mean just to be clear, he he gave that quote that comes from before Michael Jordan had played his first NBA game, and he wasn't saying, oh, you know, Michael Jordan potentially could become the great. I mean he's saying at this very moment, this is the best basketball player on the planet, and he was probably right. No, it's interesting. I mean Michael Jordan left North Carolina. He didn't even want to leave. His coach and his mom, you know, his dad apparently, you know, they essentially said, look, you're too good. You could get hurt. Go to the NBA. You're too good. He wanted to stay and be a senior and enjoy uh, college life. There were these articles about, you know, a lot of talent, but we're not sure if there's a real position for him. And Bob Knight, again, it's it's ironic we are quoting Bob Knight as uh, this great prognosticator. But he basically said he, he his friend was the general manager of the Portland Trailblazers who picked in the NBA draft. And Bob Knight said, shit. Take Michael Jordan and play him at center if you have to. Just don't pass up this kid. Of, of course, the Trailblazers did not heed that advice and regretted it since. Again, it's what we're saying. So, A, Michael Jordan makes clear that he's really, really fucking good at basketball. The fact that he doesn't have a clear-cut position, is not, that that is surmountable. He'll figure out a way. But also, it's the charisma. And right. here he is. He's on TV. He's sort of word is getting out. There are more and more ways to see athletes the Olympics was kind of the Michael Jordan show, and these these coaches would sort of say, it's unbelievable. It's, it's almost like he can fly. And while the Spanish coach is talking about flying, Nike is hard at work designing a signature shoe. Wouldn't you know it around that very theme? The great story where one of the designers flew back to Portland from meeting Jordan's agent, and the kid next to him got a pair of wings on the plane back when, uh, in, in the pre-9-11 days, when we could dispense uh, wing pins. Sharp objects, yeah. Yeah. And that became sort of the, the the Air Jordan logo, and so you had you had this combination of a this surpassingly good basketball player, the, this charisma, this magnetism at a time when personality mattered, and he was going to a big market that was Chicago. And the other thing that I think is is sort of ironic and, and strikes me as a little sad is that Michael Jordan got it. Yeah, Michael Jordan had presence. He had this enterprising spirit. He sort of understood the parameters of power. He knew Bobby Knight was an asshole, but he also knew that he was the coach and there was a way to sort of curry favor with this guy. He, his politics were really good. His sort of his self-awareness, he, he was a really sharp guy. And I, I feel like we're, we're a little deprived of that. Michael Jordan now is sort of the cipher who yeah. plays golf and we don't hear from much. But in, in 1984, he was able to marry these tremendous basketball skills with this real personality that made their way to the UK uh, a few months later, apparently. So as you said, Michael Jordan, the Summer Olympics, I want to just talk about the Olympics, the 84 Olympics a little bit, because we started, you know, I started making the point about Prince. And as I said, you know, when I came home that summer, everybody was terrified of what the Olympics were going to do to LA. And there's legendary stories of, 
you know, people assumed there was going to be gridlock. You weren't going to be able to get around. And Peter Ubroth, who ran the Olympics, ran the Olympics so well, transformed the Olympics in a lot of ways and ran the Olympics so well that people then for years after talked about Peter Ubroth as being a potential president of the United States. He was so revered for what he did in that Olympics. It obviously went off without a hitch. They figured out the traffic problems. It was actually maybe the best two weeks in LA traffic in my whole life. My father, I remember saying to me, this is the best traffic I've had in the 30 odd years I've lived here. Uh, how did they fucking pull this off? I, he would have voted for Peter Uberoth for president for sure. Roger, you are, so you're an Olympics junkie, right? So when you talked about your mom watching Wimbledon for four straight weeks back when it was on when you were a kid, did you, you remember the 84 Olympics? Do you remember sitting at home and, and absorbing the LA Olympics? I got, I, the other thing I remember is Randy Newman and, and I Love LA, that song, which became like the anthem of the LA Olympics for a lot of people. Just Roger, what, from across the pond, the Olympics a big deal for you that that summer? Yeah, it was a massive. I mean, the the reality is it was obviously much bigger here. You know, the color scheme was exquisite. That was the thing that is burnt into my retina. Just the incredible color palette that they decked Los Angeles in for that entire tournament. I mean, outside of America, it was like another Olympics. Here it was a seismic moment. We're talking about days be- before the internet when the LA time... Uh, made it out of prime time in England. So it wasn't like when you think about the great Olympics that really seized Britain, other than the ones that are obviously in there, you do, you think more about Barcelona and ones that are, are closer to prime time. But yeah, that, that's the reality. When I think about the Olympics, which is so hilarious, and uh, I write about it in my book, this is before the internet. Like our ability to access this crap was ter- was just a joke in those days. Yeah. And that's why you know, I did get hooked on the NFL. It was a cult hit to begin with in Britain on an obscure channel. Um, I craved it. The NFL would put on English television a highlight package of games for an hour, but it would be a week after they actually ran. (laughs) They'd put them all to Bonnie Tyler's holding out for a hero as montages. (laughs) And I loved it because I'd never seen anything like you in America. You just did things so bloody well. And the LA games fitted into this schema. Remember, sports to us was a working class distraction our footballers were muddy men who liked to have a pint and a pie and kick each other for 90 minutes while we all (laughs) we all had punch-ups around the uh, around the stadium that's why we went to the game to taste our own blood in our mouth so the way it was packaged the la games the way the nfl was packaged was mind-blowing entertainment polish razzmatazz glam and to the real the the frustrating thing and i write about this in my book at great length is we couldn't access America in the way we wanted to. There was no internet. So during Chicago Bears games, when I knew they were taking place Sunday afternoon in Chicago, I would go around to my best friend's house. I'd never do this at home. My dad would kill me. And I would call random 312 numbers and have whoever answered, they were so beautiful. They'd be like, hello? I'd be like, hey, how are the bears doing? And we'd keep them on. Me, two 14-year-olds would be like, hello, can you tell us how? They'd be like, yeah, sure. Jim McMahon's dropping back. He looks left. He looks right. He finds Willie Gull. He runs. And that's how you had to access American sports. So it's more the frustration than anything. I, I want to talk about the bears when we get to your book, Roger, but you're like you're pushing into my Olympics coverage here. John, tell me your Olympics story, because I think... There's amazing stuff throughout the book. Glory days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changes sports and culture forever. You know, you touch on this, on the cultural stuff. You, you know, there's a whole brilliant stuff about Martina Navratilova and the politicization of athletes and the role she played that we, we could literally like almost every chapter of the book I could talk about for an infinite amount of time. But in a lot of ways, it feels to me like in that 90 days, that summer Olympics in LA was really kind of like the tentpole for everything that you write about in the book, because it was 
you know, the Olympics were coming to America and it was in a city that a lot of people thought were unlikely to pull it off. And the fact they pulled it off with the panache that Roger just described, the glamour and the success of it was really of a piece with, you know, this is also summer 1984. It's a presidential election year and, and Ronald Reagan's running on Morning in America and the Olympics were like the shining illustrative example of American majesty that that fed into the campaign thematics that helped him win a crushing reelection against Walter Mondale. I'm not saying he owned them, but it was part of that whole feel good moment in America, I think, and, and really important for that reason. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, too, this is in L.A. This is this is Reagan State. This is his neck of the woods. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Roger mentioned the color scheme and the color scheme was after this boycott, this Soviet boycott. There was this sort of directive and you brought again, big credit to him. So let, let's not turn this into what we now call culture wars, right? I mean, let's let's not turn this into a theater for the Cold War. This is an international right. festival. So you had, here it is, it's the height of, you know, it's the height of Reagan 80s. It's the height of the Cold War. It's, it's in the U.S. And you've got all this teal and purple and all these sort of these crayon colors that, that Roger uh, r- recalls. Yeah, by the way, te- te- teal had not even been invented in <laughs> yeah, England. Exactly. Yet. <laughs> it was it was coming. Uh, it was coming. About Still hasn't been later. invented in England. Yeah. It was in Rolling Stone. Um, Willie Galt brought it over. Um, no, I, I think in a weird way, this this was the best of I mean, it. I wrote in the book about it, how 84 was also sort of the summer of Trump. And through sports, yeah. Donald Trump emerges. If Trump is the dark side, uh, this is the LA Olympics were everything right about capitalism and free enterprise. And we had these Olympics that were this tremendous success. This boycott ended up being sort of a, a disguised blessing. The U.S. never won more medals. There was this McDonald's tie-in that I think, you know, we write about jokingly and there, there was a Simpsons takeoff of it. But I, I think that's really part of the mythology of these games that this quintessential this archetypal American company McDonald's was giving out free food when Americans got medals, which they did a lot. And by the end, what do you have? You have this American exceptionalism. You have these games that really celebrated the United States. They were in Los Angeles, this sort of sexy, exotic city yeah. that uh, birthed our, you know, this is where our president came from. And we all got free Big Macs at the end. And, and, and it made money. And it made Did money. that really happen? That's it. Yes. You saw elite athleticism, yes. and then you're like, yes. "Hey, kids, eat shit, <laughs> eat yes. fries." Exactly. That's exactly right. When, when, when everybody ran 26 medal. miles in record time, oh, go, you, go eat your French fries. Yes, exactly. That's America for you. I can tell you. I remember being excited every time we won a medal because I could run down those at McDonald's, not that far from my house. I'd be in there in in a heartbeat. Um, we're gonna take a, we're gonna take a break <laughs> um, and come back and and talk about Rogers teal free. Uh, Britain of the mid-1980s. On the other side of this break, uh, here with John Wertheim and Roger Bennett on Hell and High Water. And we are back for the third and final part of this great walk down memory lane into the 1980s with John Wertheim, uh, Roger Bennett, both authors of fantastic books. I will say again, for anybody who hasn't already gotten these books, Glory Days by John, Summer of 1984 and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. I believe that's actually true. And Roger Bennett, Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. This, I think of as Roger's theme song from the band that meant more to him at this time than anything else. Let's listen to the Beastie Boys right now. Boys. 
There it is. The Beastie Boys. You know, it's really funny. Last The last podcast that I recorded here was with Shepard Ferry and Say Adams. Say Adams actually created the Beastie Boys logo and was the artistic director at Def Jam. Uh, Shepard Ferry, obviously uh, another Angelino and a lot of these kind of topics kind of wound into our discussion. The Beastie Boys, Roger, meant a lot to you. You're like telling me that you'd see Tom Cruise, you'd be like, who's that? And the movie wouldn't get there for <laughs> another year. And I know you said you subscribed to Rolling Stone, but you were like right up to date. You were bang on the Beastie Boys, right? Like they were, you knew about them when that song came out, that record came out and you were a huge fan at the moment when it happened, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd say music was the one actionable item you could really make part of your life. I subscribed to Rolling Stone. Whatever David Frick reviewed, I would order. I didn't know what the hell it was, but I get it on special order. And so I heard the replacements. I heard Husker Do. I heard the Meat Puppets. I heard Dwight Yurkum, the Georgia Satellites, Jason and the Scorchers. And I heard Run DMC and Eric, Eric B and Rakim. All of it came over. I loved all, all of it. It's very diverse, but it all sounded like one noise to me, which was America. And I was freedom. particularly, yeah, I mean, democracy and freedom, particularly fascinated <laughs> by Run DMC, who I first heard when I came over to America, finally, age 15, they were on, they seemed to be faintly audible all summer. And these gentlemen, you know, I was listening to the Smiths and REM, these gentlemen were saying, your music is about passive, wistful longing. This music is about using your mouth as a fire hose, spitting words, making boasts, and making those boasts come true. And I was quite fascinated. And then obviously the Beastie Boys came off the back of them, and they really did take England in a remarkable way. We were all ripping Volkswagen logos. Or there was not a single Volkswagen that still had its logo in place in Liverpool in that day. Everybody <laughs> was walking around with golden chains, with their mother's golden chain with a VW logo slapped on there. And I was fascinated by them as a Jewish kid. You know, these three co-religionists, friends running around Manhattan nightclubs. Really, they were like the kids in every class who just seemed to want to test everybody, see what they could get away with. And for them, they could get away with almost anything. I mean, they were touring yes. with Madonna. They yes. were dating Molly Ringwald, our generation's yes. uh, Marilyn Monroe, quite a drop-off of. But the, the reality <laughs> is they came to England for this tour. And yeah. immediately, we're talking about the culture wars earlier in this podcast about four hours ago. But the, <laughs> the culture wars kicked in then. Like the Piers Morgans of their day, immediately, as soon as they landed, foamed at the mouth. And they were playing eight dates. Liverpool was the last one. And as they moved from south to north, just the moral outrage. These kids are here to deprive the next gen, you know, to just, to just take them into moral depravity. By right. the way, we were already in moral depravity. That's the right. hilarious part of all this. But these hey, Roger, three. Yeah. Do you want to hear what they sounded like then in an interview? Yeah, I'd love yeah. it. Put them all on. Right, let's, play, let's play this Beastie Boys interview from England, from this very moment that Roger's describing. Seems your reputation has preceded you. First, we weren't going to let you in the country, and now that we have let you in here, we're having heart attacks every time you play. What, what, do you, what is it about the band that drives people crazy and makes them pull their hair out and, you know? Who knew? <laughs> Who is to know? I mean, you know, the records we make are records for our fans or whatever, for the kids, and they know what it's about. And hopefully they don't believe all the lies that the tabloid press makes up. And, you know, it's just one thing after another. Every day it's a new lie made up about us, I guess, just, you know, with the tabloid press here in Britain doesn't seem to happen anywhere else. Everywhere else they can write about our music and the shows and the tour and everything. Yeah, which Just here in Britain they seem to want to sell uh, papers. Well, we're very, we're very weird here in Britain. You know, we'll jump on anything we can I'm find. I'm mainly interested, interested to see what the Mirror's going to write tomorrow because I just spit on one of the dudes from the Mirror. And, uh, so there should be some incredible lie in there tomorrow. <laughs> 
So there's Adam Yauch. Um, I like the thing of like, they write these things, they're just trying to sell papers. And Adam Yauch then says, I'm interested to see what the mirror is going to write tomorrow because I just spit on one of the guys from the mirror. You're like, well, <laughs> you wonder you wonder why they're writing the stories they're writing. Adam, like, you know, God God rest his soul, by the way, Adam Yauch. Uh, I can tell you what the mirror wrote about them because I've got yeah. it right here. Look at this. These were the English <laughs> papers of the day. The yeah. Buzzsaw, the Daily Mirror. How beastly. <laughs> this time it's the rioting fans who see off the beasties. Um, the reality is they came to Liverpool. Everybody wanted to go and see this band. If an exploding penis was going to come out of a box yes. in our city, we were all going to be there to see it. We all went down. This is the climax of my book. And uh, Adam Yacht off stage made the fatal mistake of saying, fuck you, Liverpool, <laughs> before yeah. he came on, That's which you can get away riot. with, I'm sure, in L.A., get away with in Chicago. Wherever, but in Liverpool, that's fighting words, like insulting someone's mother to your face. And we went in a second from the most excited. This was our Woodstock. This was our moment. The Beastie Boys were going to share the same oxygen as us to just reflexively tearing the stage apart. A bombardment of beers thrown at the right. band. They were canned off stage. Ad Rock came back on stage with a baseball yeah. bat and got arrested, tear gas, the police, a lot of violence. It was a night of darkness. And that, to be honest, was the night that I decided that I had to leave. You wanted to be an American. <laughs> you know, there was, uh, no, there was a lot before. William Refrigerator yes. Perry played a wow. huge role, obviously, Don Johnson. But the, the reality is that night, more than any other, there's an adage. If you give an Englishman the choice between his success and your failure, he'll always choose your failure. And rather than enjoy that night, we brought the Beastie Boys down to our level. And I right. knew that, that I had to leave. Well, I will tell you that I, I met those guys in the late fall of 1986 when the album came out. I wrote something about them. They came to Chicago in the winter of 1986-87 and played at the Aragon Ballroom. And we were backstage with them. Adam Yau, kid of my girlfriend, and a few years later in London, apologized to me when I informed him that he'd made a move my girlfriend. And he'd become a Buddhist by then. It was very apologetic. But they had a Beatles-like seen on the street in front of the Aragon and they were throwing cases of Budweiser out of the third floor window, full cases of Budweiser out onto the street to this mob of people. So it wasn't that different in Chicago, Roger, than it was in Liverpool. Only we appreciated the inflatable penis and the and and and, and MCA telling us we never got that telling us to fuck off. Now Roger then makes the the key here. He's brought up with refrigerator Perry a few times. John, I'm going to ask you this question, then we'll go back to Roger. But Roger eventually makes it to to America, having dreamed of it his whole life. Uh, at this point, he comes to Chicago. He has a friend. He gets to Northbrook, goes and visits New Trier High School, where uh, some of the John Hughes movies were set. Is obsessed with the Bears. This is now 1986. The Bears have just won the Super Bowl. And I want to ask you, John, this question, which is given your vast knowledge and all the stuff you've written about, just talk a little bit about, just tee this up, the Chicago Bears of that 1986 Super Bowl team and what they were in our culture because they were not just a football team. I mean, they were something else. And again, we're going to get to the Super Bowl shuffle in a second, Raj. So hold on. But John, just talk about like the way the Bears became something other than just like a championship football team. They were a big, huge pop cultural phenomenon. Can we detour to Bob Odenkirk real quick? Is he did, okay? Did you ever, uh, I know everybody <laughs> wants to know that, but did you ever hear the story where he, he wrote the Bears? He, he wrote the skit. Oh, my God. He was, he was sort of the struggling Saturday Night Live writer. And they said, boy, you, yeah. you got to deliver something. Yeah. And this was his career-saving move. Yes. And I feel like, you know, part of the Bears, it was the the the, the punky QB with the, with the headband. And it was Walter yes. Payton. And it was in middle America and the coach. And it was the personality. And it's, you know, probably the best defense ever. But I also think it was one of these teams, and you're never quite sure why this happens. Some of these teams just kind of catch this cultural wave. And 
I seriously think that Saturday Night Live skit did as much to elevate this team as nearly going through a season undefeated or ha- having this wonderful, the sort of the, the mayhem on defense and then sort of the, the balletic Walter Payton. Will Willie Galt, you mentioned, the ballet dancer. Yeah. So it was this kind of highbrow, lowbrow mix. But I, I think the Bears benefited immensely from the Super Bowl shuffle, from this cartoon character running back who was this lovable guy with the gap tooth from, from South Carolina. And honestly, right. I, I think that the Bears were one of these teams that were able to couple this sort of athletic greatness with also they, they really caught the cultural wave and the stupid video that we now look back and make fun of. And yeah. I'm telling you, that, that Bears skit, yeah. people talk about that team, and what do they remember? It's, it's John Goodman with, with a Chicago accent. And if that Here, brought Roger to the United States, uh, all, all the more power. Here comes Super Bowl Shuffle right now for Roger. I want to play a little Super Bowl <laughs> Shuffle. Let's let's play just for you, Roger. You're looking at the fridge. I'm the rookie. I may be lost, but I'm no dumb cookie. You see me hit. You see me run. When I kick and pass, we'll have more fun. I can dance. You will see. The others, they all learn from me. I didn't come here looking for trouble. I just came to do Super Bowl Shuffle. That's the fridge verse right there. Um, they all had verses, and uh, and that was the fridge verse. I knew that would be the one that would mean something to you, Roger, so I figured I, I'd play I, it. I, Steve Fuller, the backup quarterback, his verse is still the one that's known in history. <laughs> even even he bloody got a verse. So just go, Roger. Talk about your, tri- your like Chicago. I mean, I think about, you know, I grew up in, in L.A. I went to school in Chicago. Like, New Trier means something to me. Um, it does not surprise me that, that someone who was already inclined to be in love with America that a, a trip to America that landed you in the, on the North Shore of Chicago would have been a thing that would cement the deal, like I'm coming back, especially around that time frame. It was deeper to me because my great-grandfather, Kosher Butcher, left Ukraine in the early 1900s. Where did he want to move? To the hog capital of the world, Chicago. Make millions. And that was where he was headed. And the boat docked in Liverpool to refuel. He saw the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline, pointed at it, and it's like, we're here! We're in New York. Oh, Let's no. get off. Yes, yes. That's Come a- on, is that real? Is that a true story? <laughs> that is the family myth of every Jew who yeah. ends up in Liverpool. Like, why the hell do we end up? Why would anyone come here? And that's like, they're just like the most low IQ ones who were like, the promised land, everybody <laughs> off. And so we in the family, like our myth, my, my grandfather, who I was very close with, I played chess with him, grandfather, Grandpa Sam, every afternoon, he'd take this Statue of Liberty. When things were dark, he'd take this tchotchke, this Statue of Liberty off his fireplace and he'd look at it and he'd say, we should have lived there. We should have lived there. And we didn't, but we dreamed. I dreamt that I was really an American trapped in an Englishman's body and I feasted on Miami Vice, you know, run DMC, Tracy Chapman, heart to heart, the love boat, and built this American alter ego that I, you know, did all the things I didn't do, like be happy, enjoy, <laughs> laugh. And then I had a pen pal in Chicago who invited me over at the end of the summer. Bears had just won the Super Bowl, as you say, and I came over. You know, he was in the northern suburbs. So suddenly I find myself the star of my own John Hughes movie, just the protagonist in my, what was I going to be? Was I going to be Duckman or was I going to be Andrew McCarthy? I was definitely never going to be James Hedder. You know what? What was it? So it was a summer where it was all up for grabs. Everything Bueller? was familiar to Bueller. me. Bueller. God, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, funny enough, I realized I was a Cameron letting life happen to me and I wanted to be a bloody Ferris. I wanted to be more of a protagonist. And that summer was like when Ferris Bueller came out a month after I got home in England, I watched it as if it wasn't a comedy. It was really a documentary of my time in Chicago. I did all that. I didn't go to Abe Fruman's. I didn't have uh, dinner, but the rest, I had Art Institute, the Bleachers, Sears Tower, the works. 
And the one thing I couldn't do was see my beautiful bears because they, they chose to up and go to England to play the first bloody NFL game against the Dallas Cowboys ever, the American Bowl. Yeah. And it was an agony. You know, I imagine myself going to watch them in training. Maybe Ditka would allow me to call a couple of plays. This was my moment. <laughs> Instead, they were hanging out with Phil Bloody Collins <laughs> in London and they seemed to be having the time of their lives. So I watched the game. And the broadcaster during the game just said, he goes, and uh, right after the game, the Bears are going to return right home here to get on with the preseason. And I said to the host, I said, we got to go. we got to go to O'Hare. we got to go. we got to go and meet them. And God love America. Because again, if I said that to my mother, I'm a 15-year-old. I'd like to go out in the middle of the night to an airport and to hang an airport. out, wait for strangers. She'd be like, go to bed, Roger. But the Americans were like, sure, go for it. And so we went. And the Bears at 4 a.m. after a couple of hours waiting came out of international arrivals dicker trying to stub his cigar in my face being like these men are your heroes leave them alone <laughs> i was just like flash 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 they all came out walter payton sweetest human being in the world posed for a photo three times with me when my camera jammed oh my god lovely guy god love and then out came the fridge and he put his huge arm around me and he whispered in my ear he said son Live your dreams. Anything is possible. I live my dreams. You can too. Which, John, you'll know working in sports is an amalgam of every cliche any athlete tells a kid when they want to get the hell away from them. But like 15-year-old me, I like dropped to my knees, wrote them down. I was like, the fridge. The fridge has just told me to move to America. And that, and that's, that's it. The fridge did it all. If, if we had all the time in the world, I want to explore Roger, you know, lost his virginity to Purple Rain, which I think is a very, a very apt. I'm I thought pleased that about when that. you played Prince at the beginning, that's what came across Well, I was mind. thinking about if I had more time, I, there's a lot of music I'd play. I also, I noted that luckily the virginity losing comes after the point in the book where Roger writes uh, about his time at Liverpool College, which I think wasn't really a college. <laughs> Roger, this is high school, Roger? Is that high school, uh, junior it, high? Yeah, it's all the way. It's a great gardens of education. Yes. So Roger's at Liverpool College, and he says he played rugby in, in the winter and cricket in the summer. Uh, it says in, in the notes that I wrote, there's that Ro it was that Roger was a late bloomer, and this led to him describing the, the locker room uh, situation at Liverpool College, where he says, quote, I knew two things. Showering was unavoidable, and timing was everything. <laughs> um, and I'm glad, Roger, in that context, that the loss of the virginity took place after that, because timing it, you know, is everything. It's true. It's funny how science works. Yeah, thank God for that. So here's the last question, uh, which I think your story about the Bears, Roger, I think raises the last question for both you guys, right? The thing about that is that sports, we've talked about the Olympics, you know, sports for a long time, and certainly in this era that we're describing now, and for some time after, you think about the Dream Team, other things in the 90s, we've talked about Michael Jordan, there's the American Bowl, Roger, you just described. You know, sports was a huge part of how the image of America got formed around the world. Like, what do people think about America? For the American brand, the ultimate global brand ambassadors were people like Michael Jordan and football. You know, when we talk, you know, when basketball eventually made its way to Africa, there was all these, you know, Stern was very focused on international expansion. But if you lived in London or you lived in anywhere in Europe, you lived in places like China, you know, that's what people thought about America almost more than who was the president at a given point. They learned about American culture, ethos, everything, aesthetics by the, the infiltration into those cultures of American sports. So I ask you guys as we sit here today, I know you're both, John, you're an American, Roger, you're now an American and you sit, you live in New York City, but I, I, I know you guys also get around, right? And you're very connected to, and Roger, particularly you with your connection to footy, you know, there is a global sports culture now. Is it like that now? 
it was, again, unequivocally a good thing for American soft power in some ways that its sports were its ambassadors around the world. It reflected positively on the country. Is it now in the era of not, we're now past Donald Trump, maybe, is it still like that? Or is the the role that sports plays in shaping kind of global attitudes towards America, has that lessened in your experience? If it's still as influential, is it as positive? Or has Trump changed things in some way? I'm trying to get my arms around that kind of larger thing of how sports is, you know, this calling card for America around the world and was, again, unequivocally positive for a very long time. Has any part of that calculation or any part of that, that formula, has any part of that changed? I mean, you know, everything's changed, right? Um, I, I just think, like, the games are still for for most sports. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because soccer slash football is the exception. But as long as the games are still here, we will accommodate this this great Greek basketball talent. But then he comes to Milwaukee and he gets to order Chick-fil-A and, and stream it. And we all get to see him in middle America. And the Slovenian guy ends up in Dallas. And, you know, the, the Japanese slugger doesn't want to stay in Japan. The, the pitching slugger doesn't want to come to Japan. He gets to go and play for the Angels. And I think as long as the games are here, I mean, David Stern, you're right, always wanted to put teams. He's like, I, I'd love to have the Knicks play the Barcelona Dragons. The best thing that ever happened to the NBA was they couldn't make that work for, for a variety of reasons, time differences and the demise of the Concord. As long as the games are still held here and, and the culture is still here, I, I think that goes a long way. The flip side is... Yeah, a lot about this country has been exposed, and you you sort of we read these books, and you, you know, we we all we all have nostalgia, and this this theme of American exceptionalism really seems quite outdated and quaint at this uh, particular moment. But I think as long as long as the games are happening in the U.S. and we see the great Greek basketball player ordering a Chick Fil A, there still is some sort of uh, some some sort of intangible glamour that comes through the U.S. through sports. Roger, give us a kicker here, buddy. Yeah. I, mean, I, I wrote my book because uh, in large part, I read a Pew Foundation study that revealed in 2017 that 46% of Western Europeans, or I should say only 46% of Western Europeans, had a positive image of the United States of America. And I found that honestly appalling. That was like a chicken bone that stuck in my throat for days. You know, at the very time the world cried out for global leadership, the United States had traditionally provided it both intentionally and with soft power, had just eroded completely. And that's why I wrote the book. My life has been organized around the American idea. It's the dominating idea of my of my life. And I wanted to retrace the contours of that love and understand how I engage with it, how I built up that perception, a completely manufactured perception of America, just how powerful and enticing it can be. And from a sporting perspective, I'd say sports is actually still the one part of American soft power that is really working. And I know that because when I spend time in the Premier League, or if I go to Barcelona or Madrid, the players, they all want to talk about NBA or the NFL. Harry Kane, the great, the England captain, is obsessed in talking to me, not about great footballers or, you know, great Champions League games. He wants to talk to me about, have I met Tom Brady? He His dream is to be an NFL kicker. And it's not a funny, he's not a funny man. It's not a funny story. He's just floating out there. The thing that's changed is that the American athletes are now obsessed. It's a two-way relationship. It's a global game. And so, 
Aaron Rodgers is obsessed with Manchester City. JJ Watt is obsessed with Chelsea. Just about every NBA player. I mean, LeBron owns bloody part of Liverpool Football Club. They are obsessed with the world's game in the same way as they only used to follow American ball sports. And the notion that it's become a two-way interaction, which really John's Yanis story, kind of the Chick-fil-A Greek winning here in a dominant fashion, that integration is the, is the new reality. And I think it's, we're all the better for that. You guys, um, I was looking forward to this podcast and you made it even better than I could have possibly imagined it, like live beyond any, any realm of fantasy that I could have conjured. John Wertheim, the author of Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. And Raja, Roger Bennett, Roger, my friend, congratulations again to both of you for writing this, for writing your books, Roger's book, Reborn, re in parentheses, parens, reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. It's kind of a mash note, really more than a love letter. And I, I say that admiringly. It's a bit of a bit of a mash note. Congratulations to both of you guys for writing such great books. And thank you for taking Four hours, as Roger put it, rather snarkily in the middle of this thing, just being typically being a dick, like it's one of his things he loves to do. He's like jammed his book down my throat to get on this podcast, and then he goes and throws the elbow. So that's it's fine, been, Roger. I love it's you. been five yeah. now, John. It's lovely to be with you. We're time. It's lovely to spend Likewise. some time with you. You, you. you really are an incredible writer. John, thanks for having well, us on. Later thanks, days, guys. Thank you very much. That was Courage. great. Thanks, guys. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Roger Bennett and John Wertheim for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 